Open your uh, your Bibles with me to the book of Acts, chapter 4. Last week, we looked at Peter and John uh, and the formerly lame guy. <laughs> they had been arrested and taken before the council, the Sanhedrin. Seventy-one men who were among the most powerful men in the nation. A puppet government under Rome, but they had great power. They essentially were the ruling elite. Uh, I'm not going to go there and <laughs> talk about ruling elite. They were. They, they were the guys that had the power. Because the miracle that Peter had performed on this lame man, it, it was indisputable. The council couldn't find anything to accuse these guys of. They even tried to accuse them. They were trying to find grounds to accuse them of doing it by someone else's power or in someone else's name. Remember, we looked at that and, and they couldn't. <laughs> so their chosen chosen course of action would be to severely threaten them. I know we can't find anything to accuse these guys by because they literally had done nothing wrong. Uh, in Peter's own own words, if we're guilty because we did something and we were used of God to heal this lame guy, then we're guilty. <laughs> so they said, we're going to threaten them. Uh, remember, their their words were very emphatic. And in the original, it literally translates, they threatened them with a threat. <laughs> and, and they warned them, you're not going to speak in this name of Jesus anymore. That's it. You're done. Not a word. Uh, definitely implied, if you do, you're going to have more trouble than you've got right now. So they threatened these guys and they let them go. But before that, Peter's response to them had been bold and direct. <laughs> I love the boldness that Peter has. I mean, you contrast that with the guy that's warming his hands at the enemy's fire back when Jesus was being uh, tried after he'd been arrested and, and, and essentially denying the Lord and all of that. And here Peter is standing filled with the Holy Spirit. A notable difference. Uh, he tells the council, it's up to you to decide whether we're going to obey God or we're going to obey you. <laughs> and essentially, he leaves it hanging with that. Uh, the consternation that must have been with these guys, was uh, I, I just can only imagine. The text doesn't tell us. But you got to know that when Peter was speaking like this to these men who were so filled with their self-importance and their power, they were drunk with power, uh, that they didn't like it. They, they just probably set their teeth on edge. So from there, we looked at the order of things that God's word lays out. It is the takeaway that we have in this is that, yes, we are as Christians to obey civil authority. Romans 13 is clear. Obey the governing authorities. And Paul says there, the apostle Paul says there, he says, if you don't want to be afraid of the government, do what the government says. <laughs> be obedient. However, that is only and up until that authority directly contradicts God's authority in our lives, period. Uh, we are to obey the government. But if the government mandates something that flies in the face of what we stand for and, and what God's word represents to us as Christians, then his word's pretty clear. Got to be careful on that. Uh, you know, I, I have read over the years about, you know, some Christian, quote, Christian group going and shooting an abortion clinic doctor. There is nothing in God's word that you can justify that with. Uh, that is absolutely wrong. As a matter of fact, God's word declares the opposite. Vengeance is mine, 
declares the Lord. I will repay. It's not up to us. God never uses the church as an instrument of judgment. Never. You tell me one place in, in the New Testament where the church is actually used as an instrument uh, as a weapon of God's judgment. Yeah, it's all over the place in the Old Testament. God would use, <laughs> Israel would get into sin. They'd get into some idolatry or some mess. And God would allow this other nation, this neighboring nation or this hostile power to come in and thrash them. And what's remarkable on that is that then God would say, look at what you're doing to my people. And he would thrash the people that he had allowed to thrash them. Uh, it's It's amazing. When you stand back, you look at the big picture of all of that. So anyway, after being released, the men returned. They went, they reported everything that had happened with the council uh, to the other believers there in Jerusalem. And this is a crowd that is growing. Uh, yeah, we start out with 120 people. We see in chapter one, we see that, ex, uh, that expand in chapter three to 3,000 people get saved. And then we see that Peter and John here at the gate, beautiful in Solomon's portico, he preaches the gospel 5,000 more. This is a big group. I love their response, their corporate response to the things that are going on. They simply pray. I'm going to reread verses 24 through 30 because it, it, it plays right into the context of where we're going with the text that we're going to look at this morning. It says, so when they heard that, the, the things that the apostles had reported back to them about being with the council, they raised one voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, you are God. I love that. Who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the mouth of your servant David have said, why did the nations rage and the people plot vain things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. Now, Lord, look on their threats. Speaking of the threats of the Sanhedrin, look on their threats and grant that your servants that with all boldness, they may speak your word by stretching out your hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. So it's worth mentioning again, the disciples didn't ask for relief from the threats. They asked for boldness in the midst of the threats. And, and we talked about briefly last week, signs and wonders and healing. Those were central to the manner in which God established the early church. There wasn't a long history of the church. There was no history of the church at all prior to this. And so he's using these miraculous supernatural events to found the church, to bring the church into being. That through these indisputable things that people would come to know that there is a difference. The question becomes, does God still do this? No, not to the extent that he did in the apostolic era. Do or, But it is... Is God still in the business of doing miracles? Absolutely. I, I was reminded as I was preparing for this, I was reminded of, of of the Hofer family. Some of you, many of you, probably most of you remember them. And uh, they've since moved to Missouri. And I'm in contact with them on a fairly regular basis. They came in to the church and, and they were here for a short time back a couple of buildings ago when we were down on Elliott Road. And, and then they were gone for you know, a couple of years or whatever. And, and then they showed back up and 
as they were exposed to the word of God, as they were exposed to the gospel, uh, they came to me, the mom and dad uh, came to me one day and she was just bawling. And she said, when we got here, we thought we were Christians, but we've come to realize just the depth of what Jesus has done for us. And, and, and we have come to a place of asking Jesus to be Lord in our lives. And I had the privilege of, I, sometimes I call ministry, being in ministry, having a seat up close to watch what God is doing in the hearts and lives of people. And, and, and one by one, I watched that family be converted to Christ. I watched the miracle of salvation come to them. One by one, we baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Does God still do miracles? Yeah. He does miracles in your lives, many of which I'm not even aware of. And yet he is still in the business of changing lives, changing hearts, doing things behind the scenes, invisibly, by the power of his Holy Spirit. Verse 31, uh, we wrapped up last week. And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken. (laughs) That would be an experience. (laughs) In the name of Jesus, amen. (laughs) Earthquake. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And they spoke the word of God with boldness. So they're praying for boldness. And the minute they say amen, they get boldness. That's a quick answer to prayer. But you know, sometimes God takes time to answer our prayers. We know, we looked at last week, that he always hears our prayers. He always, always, always hears our prayers. Unless we are involved in an active area of sin. Because the Bible says, if I regard iniquity in my heart, God is under no obligation to hear my prayers. But other than that, he does hear our prayers. And the prayer he wants to hear at that time is the prayer of repentance. We'll talk about that as we go. But he also always answers our prayers. Not necessarily in the manner or in the time frame that we seek, because he's always working ahead of us, and yet he's faithful. He hears our prayers. He answers our prayers. Uh, I've heard it said that, that his answers are yes, no, and wait. I don't like the last one. I probably would, you'd probably agree with me that you don't either. I don't like it when I have to wait in prayer. I think about the prayers that have gone up for this Kenya trip. And then to get the call from Phil yesterday, hey, you know, the flights are all canceled. We can't get on another one. So the mission is going forward. The church is getting planted. The Ugandans and the Kenyans, they're all there. They're down for it. They're going to be evangelizing. So please pray. I told him, I said, you know, Phil, blessed are the flexible where they shall not be broken. And that's true. Very often we have our plans. The Bible tells us that we, that the heart of man, he establishes his plans, but the Lord orders our steps. And, and so all of the prayer that's gone into this trip up until now, is it for not? No, of course not. But it's, it's, it's truly, it's, it's what Jesus says when he gives instruction on prayer, your will be done. Fabulous. Please pray for that that group, for that church that's being planted. It's not going to come down the way that man had ordained that it come down, but it's going to come down the way that God has ordained that it come down. And that's a good thing. So as we begin in the text that we're going to look at this morning, uh, remember that by this time in Jerusalem, there were over 8,000 believers <laughs> and the church was growing daily. Uh, remember we read, and, and the Lord was adding to the church daily such as should be saved. Uh, powerful, powerful outworking, uh, outpouring of the Holy Spirit at this time. In verse 32, 
of chapter 4, we read, Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things that he possessed was his own, and they had all things in common. The word common there is koinos. It's where we get the word koinonia, which is fellowship. It's also the word for communion, common union. They had, they had a common union among themselves because the Holy Spirit had been poured out. And he was binding people's hearts, people's lives together. So instead of being frightened by the threats of the religious leaders that they'd made against them, the believers in Jerusalem became even more bold in their public ministry. And the unity that the people shared was, it was a remarkable thing. It was a wonderful evidence of the Holy Spirit's work among them. Folks, I want to pause too, to just to remember. We're talking about when Jesus had said, I'm leaving you here. I want you to be my witnesses in Jerusalem. That's what we're seeing here. This is the Jerusalem part because it goes to Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts as we work through the book of Acts. But here in Jerusalem, he says, this is the great commission. This is the commission you have from me. Folks, it is impossible. It is not possible to carry out the great commission unless you are first walking in the great commandment. What is that? Glad you asked. Mark chapter 12, uh, the religious leaders and Jesus, uh, I love this scene because they were always trying to trip Jesus up. They were trying to get him to be confounded in his mind. It's like, okay, that's never going to work. Uh, they're trying to trip him up with his own words. And so one of them had asked him, which was the greatest commandment in the law of Moses? Jesus replied, Mark twelve twenty nine. Jesus answered him, said, the, uh, the first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is the first commandment. And the second is like it, and it's this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says there is no other commandment greater than these. So first it's love God, and then it's love others. He doesn't say three, I want you to note. He says, I want you to love other people like you love yourself because we have very little trouble loving ourselves. I really, he says, on these two, in another one of the gospels, hang the law and the prophets. The whole Old Testament is fulfilled in this. That's the great commandment. Love God, love others. So here in chapter four, we're seeing the fulfillment of that. The multitudes are coming into a relationship with God that they hadn't previously understood or even known existed. No longer would they be uh, endeavoring to walk with God, to, to, to see God as one that had to be legally reckoned with. Because that work was done on the cross. The full, Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it. And he did. So that now, by simple faith in Christ, the law is fulfilled in me, in him. I don't have to live by the rules. This new relationship that people was that they were experiencing it was a law that was wholly based upon his love, his grace, his unmerited favor towards man. The way was open for for this personal relationship, and out of that newfound love for God, they were experiencing a profound love for one another. I think about I look at this in our little church. I think you guys actually like being around each other, and I like being around you. I mean. That's part of the working of the Holy Spirit. It's not by mistake. 
How can so many people from so many different interests and walks of life and, and, and different things going on in the different personalities, how could we come under one roof and actually like to be together? I, I echo the words of Peter when he was on the boat and he saw that Jesus had set breakfast out on the shore and he simply said, it's the Lord and it's the Lord. He's the one that binds our hearts together. He's the one that gives us this love, the love that we experience, the love of God that we experience has been shed abroad in our hearts. And he says, there's one thing I require of you. Give it away. Love others like you love me. That was happening. The people were becoming more selfless in their care for one another. Their sacrificial giving that we're told here. Luke tells us that was a part of this church from its beginning. Remember, we saw that, that they, they began to do this right from its inception. And not only were they doing that, it it wouldn't die out. It would grow stronger and stronger as the weeks and months and years went by. Becoming a Christian meant that one would be welcomed into a community. And that community shared common provisions here in the first century. And that it wasn't driven by compulsion. They weren't, okay, now that you're a Christian, okay, sign up here. You know, what what kind of holdings do you have? What what do you have? How many sheep do you have? What kind of property? No, that wasn't what was going on at all. Simply those who had resources gave to the fund that the apostles established specifically that it was intended to help those in need. Also, to be baptized in the name of Jesus would become a very dangerous thing to do. A person could suddenly be left destitute. I mentioned last week, I mean, if you were a a, good upstanding Jew, and you gave your life to Jesus as Messiah, whom they rejected, if you were married, there was a good possibility that your spouse was not going to want to be married to you anymore. If you went to synagogue, there was a good chance that that synagogue would say, the door is shut to you. If you had a a career, if you had a trade or a craft, there was a good chance that whoever you worked for would say, not anymore, or the people that you did work for would say, we don't want you. It was a very real thing for the people, for the believers to be ostracized, to be left in want, to wonder how they were going to feed their family, feed themselves. I was thinking about this, and I was thinking back to when the children of Israel were delivered from the Egyptians back in the Exodus. They were no longer, now up until then, even though they were slaves in Egypt, they were reliant upon the Egyptians for their food, (laughs) for their sustenance. Even though that had been quite meager as time had gone by. We see there in, in Exodus 16 where God miraculously intervenes. He says in Exodus 16 too, then the whole congregation of the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the children of Israel said to them, Oh, that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the pots of meat and we ate bread to the full. Wow, do they have a skewed memory of what was going on when they were conscripted to slavery <laughs> and heavy oppression. But now they're like, oh, look, we sat, we ate by the pots of we ate bread until we couldn't. We were stuffed. And that just wasn't the case. However, they continue, they say, for you brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. <laughs> then the Lord said to Moses, I, I love God's compassion here. He's merciful, compassionate, gracious. <laughs> you would think, I would think, you know, these people, they just can't, they can't do anything but gripe. And the Lord said to Moses, just wipe them out. It's not what he does. He says, behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you. 
And the people should go out and gather a certain quota every day that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. And it shall be on the sixth day that they shall prepare uh, what they bring in and it shall be twice as much as they gather daily. He goes on. This is about the manna, the miraculous provision of God when the people were no longer able to rely on Egypt for their food. And now they're out here in the desert and God says, I will take care of you here in the first century Those Jews who had converted to Christianity were being ostracized from that same world to which they had just been converted, been delivered. They were suffering great loss in many cases. They no longer had the ability to support themselves. Once more, God miraculously intervenes. Motivated by the love of God and led by the Holy Spirit. Got to underscore that. The church immediately rallies to take care of those who have been abandoned in that way. It's just miraculous. It's marvelous how uh, this is coming about. They, they began to feel and act as though they were a family. That was never the case in Judaism. That's never the case in any other ism or world religion. But it is. It's, it, it's an earmark of the body of Christ. Love for God, love for others. Their giving was voluntary. It wasn't, and it was mutual. It wasn't mandatory. It was spirit-led love and concern, not government mandate or to use a popular catchphrase, social equity. We're going to level the playing field and make sure everybody has the same amount. That's not what's going on. Their motive was love. Love for God. Love for others effectively what they were saying is know this, if you're left destitute after receiving Christ, we're going to step in and care for you as though you were our own flesh and blood. The point in this is that the explosion of the church in the midst of a hostile environment is directly related to what outwardly appeared to be spontaneous generosity. If you just read through this, you go, well, yeah, the people are just, they're just being generous. In reality, It was the Spirit of God supernaturally moving in many hearts at once, many hearts simultaneously in providing for his people in a different way, but very much the same as he did back in the wilderness when Israel was without any way to support themselves. Verse 33, and with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them all. The early church was founded on the historical fact of the resurrection of Jesus. We know that no longer would there be any dispute as to whether Jesus was Messiah because the resurrection from the dead, when he resurrected, he proved that he was. Now, I believe that the great power referenced here in verse 33, that it has two parts that in word and in deed, the first is the power by the anointing of God's spirit with which the apostles spoke. They spoke with power. They spoke with authority and people listened. They perked up because the Holy Spirit was not only anointing them to speak. He was anointing the listening as well. I pray that before I teach every time. It's like, Lord, please let my words be your words. Lord, you tell us in your word that Jesus is my sheep, hear my voice and they follow me. I'm just a guy. And so I pray that as I speak forth God's word, that people will hear his voice and follow him. So we look at that in a, in a huge, bold way. These guys spoke with power. They spoke in ways that men had not spoken before because the Holy Spirit was bearing witness to them and through them and with the people. The other way that I look at this power uh, being uh, manifest is that in the attesting miracles, those miracles that attested to the message that the apostles brought. 
Now, the Greek word for great here is the word mega, not maga. <laughs> Picture the apostles all running around with red hats on. No, it's the word mega, and it means it simply means great. The apostles operate with mega power, great power. It says, and mega grace was upon them. The favor of God was upon them all. Wonderful, wonderful. That as we look at this and we see that, that this group was set apart, this group was dynamic with the life of God itself, motivating them, operating them as they move forward together in unity. Verse 34, nor was there anyone among them who lacked for all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold and they laid them at the apostles' feet and they distributed to each as anyone had need. So those who owned land or houses uh, beyond those which obviously they were living in, excuse me, they sold them to provide funds to feed the growing number of people who were becoming impoverished because of their faith. I, it's also possible, I was thinking about this, remember we looked at uh, when Peter preaches the first time and that 3,000 people respond, it's the day of Pentecost and there were people from all over the empire, remember, they were hearing them in their native tongues because they were from different countries. Now, a great many of those who had converted to Christ, it's very possible, even probable, that they remained in Jerusalem because this thing was life-changing that was going on. And and out of that 3,000 were no doubt people who were now refugees from another country. So again, uh, regardless, seeing this safety net that, that the, the apostles had established, um, it must have given many in the city the boldness. They prayed for boldness to consider being baptized themselves, to be able to, to make that outward sign of that inward act, because that's what they did. When they, when they were converted, they were baptized publicly. And that was the statement that they were making. No longer are we identified with Judaism. No longer are we identified with the religions of man. But now we're identified with Jesus as Messiah. And that was a bold step to take. The donations that they collected were brought to the apostles. They distributed the funds, we're told, based on a person's particular need. And and obviously, some would have greater needs than others. I also believe that part of why we see this here uh, in uh, Acts chapter 4, I believe that Luke is laying some necessary groundwork. He's adding context here, and in the following two verses, the last two verses of chapter 4, to begin to explain now what's coming in chapter 5 with regard to Ananias and Sapphira. Uh, Trouble's coming. Verse 36, And Joseph, who was also named Barnabas by the apostles, which is translated son of encouragement, a Levite of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it, and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So here we see the first mention of this guy named Joseph. Literally, it's Joseph. Many translations have Joseph. Most do. Uh, the New King James that I'm reading out of uh, calls him Joseph. At any rate, Joseph, he was given the apostles, the apostles gave him the nickname Barnabas, uh, son of encouragement. And this is the first time we see this guy. It is certainly not the last. He becomes very prominent in, in the carrying out of the mission that the men had in the New Testament. Uh, he would become known as a prophet and as a teacher. He would serve as a leader in the rapidly growing church up in Antioch in Syria, not Antioch Pisidia, but Antioch in Syria, north of Jerusalem. He would also at one point serve as a mentor to a guy named Paul. 
uh, whose name had previously been Saul. And they would go on to become fellow missionaries together until they had a dispute over a guy by the name of John Mark. And we'll get to that in the book of Acts. They had a dispute and they parted ways. Again, you look at divine providence in that. Now the mission wasn't being carried out by one, but it was carried out by two. They doubled their missionary effort through that. God used it. Now, Luke here tells us specifically that Barnabas is from the tribe of Levi. And the Levites, remember, we've talked about them in a previous study that they were the ones who were charged with carrying out the priestly duties in Israel. So to see a Levite join the church was notable. Barnabas was a man of high status. He was highly educated. He lived a privileged life and he was giving up all of it to follow Christ. Not only would he forfeit the financial support that he was entitled to as a Levite, because if you read the Old Testament, you see that the Levites Their work was the priestly duties. They didn't do other work. They didn't even have a territory that was assigned to them because they had Levitical cities throughout the country. And their living came from the the tithes that the rest of the, the nation put in. And so he was entitled to that as a Levite just by virtue of the fact that he was from that tribe. And on top of that, so he'd given that up. And when he sold the field that he owned, he probably, likely anyway, severely reduced, if not eliminated, any financial security that he had left. This guy is counting the cost, and he's throwing in with the apostles. I also want to note, too, the humility that it would have taken for Barnabas as a Levite to place his gift at the feet of the apostles. Think of it. Here's an educated priest gladly submitting himself to the leadership of a group of men who were, as we have read here in Acts, uneducated Galileans, the Hicks. (laughs) But he sees that God has his hand on these men and he throws it with them. So now at this point, Luke turns our attention from the remarkable generosity of Barnabas to the deceptive selfishness of a couple named Ananias and Sapphira. They too had sold a piece of property, but they secretly agreed to keep a portion of the revenue to hold it back for themselves. Chapter five. Now, uh, remember, there are no chapter breaks in the original. I, if, if it were me, and it's not, <laughs> I would have put the chapter break right there between verses 31 and 32, where Luke shifts gears. And he begins to talk about this provision and all that was happening in the church. Anyway, this flows right from chapter four into chapter five. It's the same narrative. And he picks up essentially in the same thing. He says, but a certain man named Ananias with Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession. And the possession, the word possession there means piece of land. All right. Calls it a piece of land further on here in the text. But that's what's going on. They sold some property. And he kept back part of the proceeds and his wife also being aware of it and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles feet. So. When they laid their gift at the the feet of the apostles, they lied, (laughs) saying it was the full amount of the sale. That was essentially what they represented. Here you go. We got so much for the property, and this is what we're given here. We've laid this at your feet. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us what their motivation was, but it does tell us that the church didn't require them to give any gift at all. They were under no compulsion. As I mentioned, this was not a compulsory thing. Had they wished to keep the entire amount, they would have been free to do so, as we see, we're going to see in verse 4. Regardless, whatever their motive was, their action was selfish. But selfishness is not what causes God to chastise here. 
And that's a sin that afflicts all of us, really. We can all be very selfish at times. And thankfully, God doesn't strike us dead for it. It wasn't their selfishness that God chose to discipline. It was their pretentious lie. They intentionally, willfully misrepresented the truth. And they pretended a total dedication to the cause when in actuality they were not totally dedicated or they wouldn't have done what they did. Verse 3, but Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? Now, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, the Apostle Paul outlines a gift of the Holy Spirit known as a word of knowledge. Peter has become very sensitive to the Holy Spirit's leading and evidently had received a word of knowledge about what had happened with the transaction with the property. And we're not told that uh, nobody told him or came up and whispered to him or anything like that. But Peter knew the Holy Spirit showed him, gave him a word of knowledge. And even the wording of Peter's question was prophetically inspired. He says he identifies Satan as a source of the lie. But then he exposes Ananias' own heart to show that it was filled with that lie. Very interesting. Now, I want to pause for a moment again here, and I want to point something out <laughs> that directly applies to us. It will, It is not, and it will never be, the devil made me do it. Popular phrase out there in the world. Oh, I couldn't help myself. The devil made me do it. Hogwash. <laughs> Our will must come into play. This is a willful act. The book of James has this to say about what I'm talking about. In James chapter 1, verse 13, uh, James writes, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one, and this is what happened here, each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires, that's the word lusts, and entice. Ah, keep some of the money back for yourself. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. So the question then becomes, is temptation sin? And the answer, no. Temptation is not sin. The Bible tells us that Jesus was tempted in all ways, even as we are, and yet without sin. Was he tempted? Yes, he. that's part of why he took on a, a humanity. He became a man that he could experience all that men experience. And guess what? Men and women experience temptation. <laughs> the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life, those are the things that tempt us. And all of us are subject to temptation. According to James here in chapter 1, sin is the result of acting on that temptation. When James talks about sin becoming full grown, he's referring to an ongoing, unrepentant, sinning heart. That's the condition of Ananias' heart here. He continues by informing him that it was in his unrepentant arrogance that he had dared speak such a lie before the church and consequently, therefore, he had offended the Holy Spirit. King David in Psalm 51, after his sin was exposed, he had remained unrepentant after he had taken Bathsheba, a married woman, married to Uriah the Hittite, had her husband sent out onto the front lines where he was killed in battle on purpose so he could have his wife. He concealed it a couple of years until a prophet by the name of Nathan, who the ladies have just finished studying, exposed his sin. In response to that, 
David wrote Psalm 51. And I love the way that he opens that. He says, against you and you only have I sinned, Lord, and done what is evil in your sight. Ananias wasn't sinning against the apostles. Sapphira wasn't sinning against the apostles. They were sinning against God. Unrepentant and doing what was evil in his sight. Verse four, while it remained, was it not your own? Talking about the property. Peter examining Ananias here. After it was sold, was it not in your own control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. Peter marveled that Ananias thought he could lie in the midst of this intense spiritual environment. Remember, we're talking about these guys. I mean, the Holy Spirit was thick upon them. I mean, he, this was a a tremendous time with the birth of the early church, of the birth of, of, of Christianity and the Holy Spirit being poured out in significant measure on them. And this guy comes marching in with a secret thinking he could conceal it from God. Thinking he could go undetected. Did he think that God didn't see what he'd done? Did he think that God would do nothing? It was almost like he was daring God to respond. Now, I, I mentioned we don't know their motives. We can only imagine what their motives would have been. I'm going to give you four possibilities here. It could have been, and, and again, the Bible doesn't tell us, but here are some things that you could just reason out. I, I don't really care which one you pick or, or none of them at all. It might have been something else. But perhaps, and this is just because I've been in, been in ministry for a few decades and, and I've seen, I've seen a lot. Perhaps they wanted their generosity to be seen. There's an aspect of vainglory in this. Look at us. Look how spiritual we are. We are, it drives me nuts when I see a church that puts the offering on the chalkboard. <laughs> but it's like, yeah, well, you know, we, we want you guys to see, we sold this piece of property. Aren't we spiritual? Perhaps the world philosophy that money is power was coming into play here. And they were looking for position or power in the church. That happens. I don't know how many times I've heard stories over the years about the guy that's running the church is not the pastor. He's the guy with the biggest checkbook. God forbid. I don't, as a, as a rule, make it my business to know who gives what here. And I'm going to keep it that way. I would never want to be thought of as pursuing the money or making it about the money. I am not a hireling. I'm here because God called me here. And I'm here because he called me to love you. And that would not be a loving thing. Or perhaps they were looking at it that way. I mean, I've been approached by people that offered to give us a lot of money. And when they were resisted, they left. They might have been uh, seeking to be admired for their generosity, as I mentioned, or perhaps positioning themselves because maybe they they saw that their money was going to run out and they wanted to position themselves to be supported by the church's benevolent fund in the future. We don't know. We don't understand their motives, but we do understand how God dealt with them. Verse five, then Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and breathed his last. He's dead. For great or mega fear came upon all those who heard these things. And the young men arose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. <laughs> that is just like, this is the quickest funeral in the Bible. <laughs> okay, the guy, the, Peter confronts him. He goes, uh, uh, it falls down dead on the floor. The guys come and they drag him out and they bury him and it's done. What's interesting here is Peter didn't adjudicate this guy. God did. 
He didn't issue a verdict or announce any form of judgment at all. He simply asked him a question. Why has Satan filled your heart to do this? Then God miraculously steps in and he applies a divine chastisement, which is shockingly severe. And folks, I am not gonna, I'm not gonna play that down. It is shockingly severe. He came, he lied, he died. No sooner had Ananias heard Peter's words and he collapsed on the floor and passed away. Now, there's some speculation here, and I'm just going to go into this a little bit because I, I actually find it kind of humorous. And there are guys that I really respect that hold this, and you can hold it if you want. There's speculation that, that Ananias was uh, traumatized by being exposed, and he had a heart attack. He was just shocked. It, 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 <laughs> but I, you know, I, and I've, I even read that in, in one of the commentaries that I read a lot, and the guy was saying, yeah, he had a heart attack. It was shocking. It, because it, but that leaves some questions to be asked. And I believe it's man's way to explain away a couple of things that are going on here. First, the supernatural. One must dismiss the notion that God intervenes in human affairs. And guess what? He does. A lot. Secondly, to assert that this was a heart attack is to place emphasis on Ananias' physical condition. When his problem wasn't physical, It wasn't his physical health. It was indeed a matter of his spiritual health that caused this to come about. Lastly, using the heart attack explanation loses credibility when the account unfolds as Ananias' wife, Sapphira, comes into the church gathering about three hours later. Verse 7. Now, it was about three hours later when his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Hi, guys. What's going on? She comes walking in and Peter answered her and said, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yeah, for so much. Yeah. He says, tell me, did you pay pay this much or sell it for this much? She goes, yeah, that's what we sold it for. She had no idea that her husband had died. And Peter's question exposes that she'd been a knowing accomplice with her husband. Evidently, the way that they had deceived was uh, in the difference between the actual price they received for the land and the price they represented and reported to the apostles. So we got this much. We told you we got this much. And guess who's keeping this? They withheld the difference uh, between the two. Then they lied about it. Verse nine. And then Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they're going to carry you out. I would not want somebody to tell me that. Now, to be fair, the text doesn't tell us if Ananias came up with this scheme or if Sapphira had, or if they came up with the idea together. I know, but because of issues of godly submission, if Ananias thought of it and and pressured Sapphira into going along with it, he was wrong to do so. But she was equally wrong to go along with his plan, if it was his plan. The concept of submission does not extend into submitting unto sin. I think about in the words of Jesus, as he was getting on the religious leaders of his day, he said, you go about on land and sea for one proselyte convert to Judaism. And when you have him, you make him twice the son of hell as yourselves. He says, you're blind leaders of the blind. You will both fall into the ditch. What he says in those is he's putting equal weight of responsibility on the deceiver and on the deceived. Essentially saying, you know better. Verse 10, and immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. 
And the young men came in and found her dead and carried her out and buried her by her husband. Second shortest funeral in the Bible. They're, they're both gone. So much for the theory that Ananias died of a heart attack. Because it was dual heart attacks if that's the case. Unlikely. I want to note something here. That Ananias and Sapphira both died is recorded clearly in the scripture here. What is not recorded clearly is, is they didn't necessarily, that didn't mean that they didn't go to heaven. They very well may have been listed among the believers and that they were sincerely trusted Christ. Only God knows the answer to that. But we see here that it's indeed possible for a Christian to sin unto death. And is that possible? Yes, it is. A couple of examples in 1 Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians 5, uh, verses 1 to 5, we read, it is actually reported, it, here Paul is writing this letter of rebuke to the church at Corinth, and he, he says, it's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and such sexual immorality is not even named among the Gentiles, that a man has his father's wife. Some guy's sleeping with his stepmother, is what he's saying. He says, you're puffed up. Oh, we're a church of grace. <laughs> no. And you're puffed up. You've not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. And no, there's a, the, the church is called to be pure. And he's saying, look, you've got it wrong. This is not something for you to boast about. He says, for indeed, as I, as absent in the body, but present in the spirit, uh, I have already judged as though I were present him who has done this deed. He says this, he goes on, he says, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, there's in the name of again, when you are gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Was this guy flirting with a sin unto death? Absolutely, he was. Now, Second Corinthians, this I think is kind of interesting and, and mildly humorous, not just because I find things like that funny. In Second Corinthians, the guy had repented, which was the whole point of this. It wasn't delivering to Satan saying, yeah, have him executed. I'm done. No, it was a gracious thing to do, to call this guy to account for his sin, to throw him out of the church. He was excommunicated and to keep the church pure, to keep the church set apart. That's part of what's going on here with Ananias and Sapphira. And in 2 Corinthians, the guy had repented and Paul has to appeal to them and say, look, let him back in. <laughs> he's, he's repented. Too much sorrow is not good, he says. The guy was sorrowful. We see another instance in 1 Corinthians 11 with regard to the Lord's Supper. Uh, Paul, they're talking about communion when they come together to, to break bread together, to have the, to come to the Lord's table. He says, therefore, when you come together in one place, it's not to eat the Lord's Supper. You're not doing it right, he leads off with. For in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of others, and when and one is hungry and another is drunk. That's not the point of coming to the Lord's table. He says, what? I love that. What? He's incredulous. He says, do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you. <laughs> I mean, and he goes on in verses 23 to 25. He talks about communion. That's the passage that I read here when we come to the Lord's table. One of the passages. Verse 26, he says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. 
Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the, of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. He says, but let a man examine himself and so let him eat the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment, condemnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. He says in verse 30 of chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians, for this reason, many are weak and sick among you and many sleep. Sleep is a euphemism in the New Testament for physical death. He's saying, you are risking sinning unto death if you do this wrong. It's a very strong warning. The key in all of it, in all of this, what we're seeing in 1 Corinthians, what we're seeing in the book of Acts is choosing not to live in unrepentant sin. Turn. Don't live in secret sin. Don't live in unrepentant sin. Everything is laid bare and open before him with whom we have to do. Verse 11, so great fear came upon all the church and upon all who heard these things. Again, there's that word MAGA. In verse four, uh, chapter four, verse 33, we, we saw uh, mega power and mega grace. And here we see the same word in a negative context, mega fear. The result of Ananias and Sapphira's death was that great fear came over the whole church and over all who heard these things. It got their attention. Seeing how God reacted to their lie caused everyone who heard about it, whether Christian or non, to become afraid to try to hide anything from God. This is a, this is a visible example of what God wants to do in our hearts. He says, look, I see it all. You don't, we don't get away with anything. We don't, we don't pull a fast one on God. It's all open before Him. This event also served to both purify and grow the church. Boy, is it hot in here. That heater is malfunctioning today. <laughs> wow. Um, we can't turn it down for some reason. I put on the air conditioner and it's not working. It's still hot. Like I said, this is as hot as it'll ever be for us, but it's getting hotter. Anyway, the event here with Ananias and Sapphira, it, it was a purifying thing. It, and it was it, it helped to purify and grow the church. Those who wanted to hide things from God stayed away. And we'll see that in verse 13 next week. Those who were prepared to be totally sincere, upfront, transparent with God would join the church. And I would imagine they quickly confessed any hidden sins. <laughs> what Sapphire and Ananias did must be seen in the context of their time. Folks, this was a critical junction for the early church in such impurity, sin, scandal, Satanic infiltration could have corrupted the entire church at its root from its inception. Was God severe in this? Yes, he was. Did he have his purposes? Yes, he did. Is he sincere? Is he serious about sin in our lives? Yes, he is. But I'm going to read something. (laughs) This is a quote I came across. Actually, I have a couple of quotes. I love reading a guy by the name of G. Campbell Morgan. Um, he's got some good things to say. He says, the church has never been harmed or hindered by opposition from without. It has been perpetually harmed and hindered by perils from within. And that's true. Very often the problems the church has are, are internal problems. They, I, I look out on the, uh, on the spiritual landscape in our day and I think, oh my goodness, is the church ever full uh, rife with false teaching? Horrible things going on in the name of God. You can walk into any number of churches and, and yeah, you might get a woke agenda now. 
But you may not get the gospel. You may not hear the simplicity that God's word puts forth. Jesus loves you. He died for you. He paid for your sins. Now you can have a relationship, a personal relationship with him. That's it. You walk into a number of places and see an entertainment agenda that has replaced true worship. Not that I'm opposed to good music, but I am opposed to entertainment. If you're here for the entertainment, you're in the wrong place. Here's another quote from G. Campbell Morgan. He says, the church's administration today is not what it was. Or there might be many dead men and women at the end of some of its services. <laughs> Which I thought was kind of funny. So what's the takeaway? As we wrap up this morning... I want to, I want to mention a couple of things. First of all, first and foremost, we are absolutely under grace. This is not meant in any shape or form to be a condemning message or for you to walk out of here fearful. Unless you're an unrepentant sin, then that's a good idea. If you belong to Christ, your sins have been forgiven. Past, present, and future. Period. Jesus wore those at the cross. So there's not some extra thing that we have to do now. He calls us to simply trust God to understand that he loves us that much. And as a result, you want to guess what's going to happen? You're going to love other people that way. You're going to fulfill that great commandment. Because then and only then are you equipped to carry out the great commission. At the same time, I would be remiss if I didn't say, God is serious about sin, utterly serious. It is that which separates men and women from God in an unrepentant, unredeemed, unregenerate, dead world. Unrepentant sin is also that which separates Christians from God, but in a different way. As we wrap up, I want to, wrap up, I want to talk about the difference between fellowship with God and relationship with God. An example that I, I like to use is when I was raising my children. And we sung the song this morning. I love that song. He's a good, good father. And as a father to my children, I always had a relationship with them. Always. I never pronounced, you are no longer my son. You are no longer my daughter. That would have been ludicrous. God doesn't disown his kids. But when my kids did something wrong, that relationship changed. Now, fellowship with my children was broken. Now they're headed for chastisement. Now they're headed for the woodshed with dad or whatever the case may be, because I love them. What God did, if Ananias and Sapphira were truly part of the church, and I believe there's a good possibility they were, that they weren't just faking it. Their chastisement was something that God did because he loves them, even unto death. Their sin was that grievous. And... That doesn't mean that he's that if I sin, that God's going to kill me. Just get that in your head. But it does mean that as his child, there are times, Hebrews 12 is very clear, that God chastens, he disciplines, he chastises those whom he loves. And he says, if you're without chastisement, there's a good possibility that you don't belong to him because he chastises every one of us for our good. That's what the writer says there. He says afterwards, after having been trained by that chastisement, afterwards it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness. It restores fellowship with God. I have a relationship with my father in heaven, and I trust that you do too. When I sin, I haven't broken that relationship. I don't believe, I believe that Jesus, when he said in John 17, nothing shall take them out of 
my hand. Take them out of your hand. I believe that I am secure eternally. And that's something for you to work out with the Lord yourself. But as for me, I am secure eternally. And I do know that the Lord chastens those whom he loves. I can break fellowship with him by walking in unrepentant sin. And God forbid that that's the case. I don't break relationship with him. And I praise God. Because he is, at the end of the day, he's a good, good father. Let's pray. Oh, Father, just the privilege of addressing you that way. Father, what a wonderful thing it is that you look down from heaven upon us. And you see us, Lord, we're all broken. We're all struggling. Some of us just to get by from one day to the next. Lord, understanding that your judgment is rolled away and that is significant. Lord, help us to understand the difference between eternal judgment and being chastised as your child. Help us to understand that you're serious about sin in our lives and that you want for us, Lord, for our good to not be caught up in it. Help us to understand that your spirit is poured out on our lives and that the ministry of the spirit changes from that of empowering to coming around to head us off at the past when we're in those places. Lord, give us understanding, give us clarity, give us balance and, and, and clarity in these areas that we don't live in fear, but we do live soberly, understanding that you're God and we're not, and that, that your son died for our sins. So why still live in them? So we give ourselves afresh to you, Lord. We pray that you would receive our worship. We thank you for your, your divinely inspired word and ask, God, that you would work in each one of us today. Thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, for this morning. We give ourselves afresh to you in Jesus' name. Amen.